This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. For more, visit lbj.utexas.edu. I'm joined today by economic and public finance experts, professors Jamie Galberth, Michael Lynn, and Martin Luby to talk about the fiscal crisis impacting U.S. states and local governments. I want to start with some context. In July 2020, nearly 100 Texas mayors asked Congress for more flexible funding to help address the shortfalls caused by the pandemic. While Texas received $11 billion in care funding, many mayors across the state are saying that those funds are not enough to close the anticipated revenue loss from decreased economic activity. This is a story that repeats itself for many cities and counties across the U.S. Marty, I want to start with you. What are the current financial challenges that many of our state and local governments are uh, facing, and how can we help those communities address those challenges? Sure. Thanks, Stephen, for uh, uh, inviting me on. Um, You're right. The the CARES Act um, funding was intended only for pandemic-related costs, so it couldn't be used to replace uh, reduced revenues associated with um, the, the basically the essential halt in economic activity in the spring and then the, the residual drag on the economy um, throughout the last year as a result of the pandemic. Um, in terms of, of dollar amounts, uh, according to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, um, state budget shortfalls over the next two years, um, so that's uh, 2021 and 2022, they expect to be about $300 million. So that's just at the state level. Um, and local governments in U.S. territories for that same period of time um, are expected to have a shortfall of about 175 billion. Um, in inflation-adjusted dollars, these are these amounts are significantly more uh, than what we saw um, as a result of the financial crisis and during the Great Recession about 10 years ago. Now, on the positive side, revenues have come in somewhat better than expected, um, at least expected back in the spring when there just was so much uncertainty of what the impact of the pandemic would be on the finances um, of state and uh, local governments. But we still are residing in this era where there's a threat of a double-dip recession. Um, we're going to have to deal with expiring federal aid associated with the CARES Act that was passed last, last March. Um, now, on, on the, on the, another positive has been uh, cities and states did build up their rainy day funds after the Great Recession. Uh, so they've been using these rainy day funds to buttress the current year budgets. Um, but these rainy day funds won't be um, available next year or they'll be available in much smaller amounts. Um, so they're not going to be a policy lever that states and cities are going to be able to rely on going forward. I should also note that the impact in, in terms of this context that we're talking about really is contingent um, on, on different cities. So cities um, have, you know, are different fundamentally uh, in terms of uh, many factors, including their tax structure, uh, various socioeconomic demographic factors like age, income of residents, population growth unemployment levels, uh, the types of employers in their community. Uh, so some states and cities have done better than others. For, for example, a city like Boston, which relies heavily on the property tax, um, they've seen their revenue decline much smaller than other cities. Um, now, of course, uh, that's the positive in the current um, time frame. On the downside is that um, the property tax obviously is, is, is uh, the impacts of recessions on the property tax lag. Um, and that could pro- provide could be really problematic going forward for cities like Boston, uh, given all the, the concerns about fundamental changes in the re- residential and commercial real estate markets going forward 
and how the pandemic may tra- change those markets fundamentally. And then finally, the final contextual factor um, that, I'll, that I'll raise is really uh, state local government's access to capital, which was really severely constrained in the March period of time in terms of trying to have access for liquidity purposes to pay their everyday bills, pay for their operating expenses, uh, which often many states and cities use the municipal securities market to borrow from to pay for those expenses. Uh, That market was disrupted dramatically in March, but it did normalize beginning in in mid-April and May. Um, And this disruption in the market really was the impetus for the Federal Reserve to implement its municipal liquidity facility, which allowed for direct short-term lending to eligible state and local governments. Um, but that hasn't been a really a successful program in terms of uptake. Um, be, as a result of the normalization of the municipal market, only two governments, the state of Illinois and uh, New York's Metropolitan Transportation Authority, ended up using the facility. Uh, so the federal intervention, as it was structured, hasn't proven to be much help to state and local governments. Um, I do have a working paper, actually, that shows that some of the other liquidity facilities that the Fed implemented in that March period of time, specifically the money market mutual fund liquidity facility, did support the secondary market and the municipal securities market, which helped normalize the primary market, um, which has allowed for uh, greater access to liquidity capital for state local governments. Now, um, I guess I'll conclude on the downside is the MLF, although it wasn't successful, um, did expire in, in, um, in, on December 31st. Um, so that lending backstop is no longer available to state local governments, which makes their finances even more fragile, um, especially from the perspective of investors. Marty, that's great. Thanks thanks for that context. Um, Michael, now in your piece in the toolkit, uh, you talked a lot about revenue sharing and sort of provided some examples about how so this flexible funding has helped pay for teachers in Manhattan and maybe even streetlights in Buffalo. Can you tell um, us a little bit about the history of federal revenue sharing and how you could see uh, federal revenue sharing helping to solve some challenges that we're facing today? Uh, yes, uh, most major democracies uh, have a system of what is called fiscal equalization, known in the U.S. as revenue sharing. That means that taxes are collected at the national level, uh, and then they're distributed to uh, federal units, whether they're states as in the U.S. or provinces in other countries, based on the population rather than on uh, the local revenue collection. So in practice, this uh, allows the states or local units, so, you know, there, there can be cities as well as uh, states or provinces uh, that, that are uh, more poor or working class to uh, benefit from uh, higher public spending. Uh, uh, usually, fiscal equalization affects uh, the public spending, the first responders, the schools, and so on. The U.S. actually had a system of uh, federal revenue sharing between 1972 and 1986, and it was remarkably bipartisan in its support. Uh, It was supported by President Richard Nixon, by uh, former uh, Vice President Hubert Humphrey. Ronald Reagan supported it. Uh, uh, Tip O'Neill, the Democrat, supported it. Uh, it It was a very popular program. Its popularity was broad, but shallow, and that is what doomed it in the 1980s, because there was a major push for uh, reducing the federal deficit. Uh, And when people went looking for programs to cut, uh, everybody liked this program, but they weren't willing to fight for it necessarily. And in addition, you had deficit hawks on the political right who were just against it from the beginning because it was government spending. And you had many progressives and liberals who uh, wanted targeted federal spending 
to uh, underprivileged and disadvantaged groups rather than uh, revenue sharing. So it was sacrificed uh, in the interest of deficit reduction by the Tax Reform Act of 1986, uh, despite its uh, popularity and bipartisan support. So, Michael, if you were going to revive this this idea of federal uh, revenue sharing, what would be some of the policy recommendations that you'd have um, to, to bring this policy back to life? Well, I think that uh, if you could, the legislation that created it would exempt it from uh, deficit reduction efforts or, or limit uh, the ability of Congress, if it's trying to cut back on the deficit, to, uh, to kill it, which is what happened in 1986. Uh, And the great advantage of it is that you would have a a system of fiscal equalization in place uh, that would automatically kick in during uh, recessions and and near depressions. And uh, Professor Galbraith can speak to the counter-cyclical effects of fiscal equalization. uh, Jamie, do you have thoughts to add to to Michael's comments? Sure. Well, first of all, just to uh, say thank you for having us here Um, and to begin by elaborating for a minute on on Mike's observations about the 1986 uh, Tax Reform Act. I was on Capitol Hill from uh, the late 70s through uh, early 1985 and uh, was uh, involved peripherally in the architecture of the Tax Reform Act of 1986. And the one thing I would add to what Mike said is that there was a general move at that time to reduce the complexity of the tax code and to eliminate special preferences and so forth. And so it was politically quite difficult to defend any one program against the kind of general sense that the purpose of the of the of the law was to uh, simplify the tax code, reduce tax rates, and uh, um, and uh, make the system more broadly fair and even at, across the across the spectrum. A great deal was lost, however, in doing that with respect to the um, security of, of revenue streams for state and local governments. And what happens in an economic downturn is that the uh, uh, tax revenues accruing to those governments fall because they're locally raised and they're based upon the economic activity uh, in their communities. Uh, and the problem of that is that those tax revenues feed directly into economic activity. They support uh, local civil servants, they support the teachers, they support the fire and the police, and they support uh, a lot of the infrastructure and maintenance and so forth and other public services on which people rely. And those are jobs and incomes. Uh, the virtue of revenue sharing is that it provides an automatic balance and the federal government can come in and say, yes, you're, well, you're facing a, a deficiency, which is counterproductive from an economic standpoint. We will support you um, during this period. And, uh, uh, and when the local economy recovers and local tax revenues recover, uh, then the need for revenue sharing diminishes. So it's, a, it's, what's, it's part of a system of automatic stabilization of which we have quite a number on you know, employment insurance and other aspects of the social security system work that way. Um, and they're extremely important, but this is also important to do to maintain the quality of, of um, public services, which are essentially the, you know, the first thing that, uh, that, that the citizens of the country, that's the first interface that they have uh, with their governing, with their governing system. Uh, so as, as Mike said, this is a very common thing in, in, in advanced countries around the world. Uh, it's something which is part of our history, but it's also uh, from an economic standpoint, a very useful thing for, to help deal with the kind of problems that we're having now. 
That's terrific. I, I want to now to sort of change our conversation and just push beyond revenue sharing for a second and and talk to the future with other policies and, and really start maybe at that state and local level and then, and then build to our uh, federal policy. Marty, if you were advising state and local leaders across the country on the outlook for public finance and some of the things that they should be considering um, going forward, what would be your two or three recommendations to to those leaders? Well, I mean, there's, there's a whole litany of probably um, policy levers that they can draw upon. In terms of federal support, the we, we have a stimulus bill that's being debated now in terms of providing direct aid to state and local governments, which, of course, the, the proposal um, of our piece would do automatically. Uh, it wouldn't be subjected to kind of the political process like what we've seen with the, uh, the COVID-19 relief bills over the last nine months. But certainly, um, you know, some direct aid to state and local governments immediately is, is necessary. Um, these aren't um, these aren't really spending problems for state and local governments. Uh, this is a revenue decline. This is a revenue hit here, um, and a significant one. So uh, federal support is, is really needed immediately um, to provide for that. I also think that there's probably some um, financing devices that I know have been discussed uh, by the Biden administration to, to help governments be able to raise resources on their own. Um, you know, in my research, there's different types of financing devices like uh, Build America bonds or expansion of private activity bonds or um, allowing governments to uh, refinance their debt at lower rates uh, through a reinstatement of advanced refunding. Some of those financing proposals, um, which, you know, aren't out of the mainstream, these are proposals that have been in play, um, they've either been seen at a more expansive level in the past um, and they've been curtailed some as a result of the 2017 tax reform. But certainly some of the, the financing opportunities are there for to give state and local governments an ability to raise capital much more cheaply and invest in their physical infrastructure, which, of course, is going to have a direct impact on economic growth. That's great. So, Michael and, and, and Jamie, I'd like to turn to your advice maybe for the Biden administration as they're sort of thinking about and grappling with these challenges. And, and Michael, maybe we'll start with you. Advice that you would have for the Biden administration Obviously, red, uh, revenue sharing is, is one policy prescription idea. Others that you may would have to suggest. Well, I, I think uh, they need to concentrate on using budget reconciliation, uh, which enables them to prevent uh, the Republicans from having a veto, assuming they have uh, 51% of, of the vote. And reconciliation in Congress is limited to uh, economic measures. So my advice, which is both practical and political, uh, is to focus on economic issues. There are a lot of things that cannot be done through reconciliation in Congress, such as immigration reform, civil rights, various other programs. But if you have a successful first year uh, by enacting successful economic policies, that will build public support for uh, other policies later. And timing is always very important in public policy to have some successes early. So I would concentrate, and I would include revenue sharing in it, but there can be other economic measures, uh, including a system of paid family leave, for example, uh, that will build up public support for non-economic reforms in the future. That's terrific. Professor Galbarth, anything to add? You get the last word on this question. Yeah, I've got quite a bit to add. I think the Biden administration's off to a very good start. The president laid out, even before he took office, a a very solid opening opening salvo of programs uh, that uh, uh, were intended, quite properly called an American Rescue Plan, uh, intended to deal with the uh, with the pandemic. This is the opportunity to have 
an early success because he could hardly start out in a worse position than they're starting out in now. Uh, and uh, if they can uh, pull off, uh, first of all, the, the, the dealing with the public health issue, and secondly, uh, initiating, uh, at least stabilizing the social and economic situation through the next year, that will already be a significant success. They will then have to go to the second phase, which has already been discussed and certainly prefigured in the president's speech, uh, which will deal with a much larger range of structural questions, including uh, the beginning to restructure the economy, the so-called build back better, but to deal with to deal with climate, to deal with infrastructure uh, and other issues that have already been mentioned. And I think revenue sharing certainly has to should be part of that. Once that's done, I'm going to say there's going to have to be a third phase, um, and we're going to have to think about, we have large uh, advanced competitive sectors, you have to think about aerospace and, uh, and construction of all kinds, which are not going to recover in the same, back along the same pattern uh, that they um, uh, were growing on uh, in the pre-pandemic period because people's pattern of demand is going to be dramatically different. We're going to still have a vast employment problem because the services sector is not going to be reconstructed as it was before. And we're going to have a very substantial financial problem because people's debts, rents, mortgages, and so forth that are being deferred now are going to eventually come due. And those will have to be renegotiated and settled in a way that's fair as possible to all parties. So, I agree with Mike that we have to have major successes in the first year, and we have to ward off the usual defeat that an administration suffers in the in the midterm elections. Uh, there's some, I think, reasonable prospect of that happening, particularly given the disarray right now of the of the other other major political party. Um, but beyond that, uh, it, it, one just can't stop, and one can't assume that there will be uh, after a certain point the economy will recover on its own. There will have to be a lot of conscious effort into reconstructing an economy that's fair for all, that provides employment for all. Uh, I think uh, a job guarantee is going to have to be a part of the of the picture, uh, and uh, that uh, uses the nation's resources in an effective way so as to maintain not only our, our position internally, but our position in the world. All of that is it's really an amazing moment when these challenges are going to come into focus in a way that they have not really, they didn't come into focus after the great financial crisis, and they have not come in focus maybe for 70 or 80 years. A very big moment for people who are engaged in public policy, such as my colleagues, uh, Marty Luby and Mike Lent. Great. We'll leave it there. Um, Professor Luby, if others want to find more out about your work, where can they find more about uh, what you're working on at the LBJ School? Well, most of my work actually is uh, in, I really do study the municipal securities market and the way uh, state and local governments raise capital and the way they, they manage their finances. So most of my work um, is in more technical journals. But uh, I occasionally will um, author op-eds um, that are in some of national publications and certainly some of the local publications as well on broader issues of state and local finance. Great. Professor Lin? Uh, yes, uh, they can uh, find my website at the uh, Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs website at the University of Texas at Austin. And my latest book uh, is uh, The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elites. And I'm glad that you can find Mike Lynch's work on the bestseller list of the New York Times and in 
bookstores anywhere around the country. My, my work is, uh, my research work is substantially on the measurement of economic inequality. And I would invite listeners to check out the University of Texas Inequality Project, which can be found at uh, utip.lbj.utexas.edu. Um, and uh, a great deal of work done mostly, of course, by my students and not by myself um, has been accumulated there over the years. Well, that's terrific. Professor Luby, uh, Professor Lynn, and Professor Galbor, thanks for joining us for this uh, short conversation. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. To learn more, visit lbj.utexas.edu and follow us on Twitter or Facebook at the LBJ School. Thank you for listening.